Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. Uh, They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, Y-E-G, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Beach and Creative Control. I have for many years. I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Beach's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years. They're good friends. Uh, But the truth is, he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up and coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity. So he's never met this person and the same really warm uh, candor as though he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat no matter who he's talking to. And for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. I'm Vish's wife. And remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. This episode of Long Night with Vish Khanna was a hybrid, virtual, and in-person event recorded before a live studio audience as part of the Long Winter Festival on Friday, November 26, 2021. For one of these live shows, the sound isn't as good as usual, but the conversations are great, so please enjoy. Live from planet Earth, it's Long Night with Vish Khanna! With our guests, illustrator and author... Ani Castillo! Vish wrote everyone's names out phonetically. For me. From Black Urbanism Toronto, we have Anika Mark and Ruth Malay! From Fucked Up and Dusted, we have musician Brian Borquette! That, uh, that, that wasn't right in, in any way, but that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> and musician, Dorothea Pass. And your host, the one, the only, live from Alberta, Visha Carter. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Linda. That was great. Good job. Just want to shout out my friend, Brian Borchard who's joining us from Nova Scotia and uh, plays in the band Holy Fuck, not <laughs> Fucked Up. Confused. I don't know. That might have been my fault, actually. But anyway, it's very nice to see you all and be with you. Thank you for being here. We have a great show, and we're a little strapped for time. So I'm going to get right to it and introduce our first guest, who was born and raised in Guadalajara, Mexico, 
where she studied communications, art, and digital media, and her popular cartoon, Pupa and Lavinia, ran for 10 years in Mexican newspapers. She and her two daughters now call Toronto home, where she teaches cartooning and has had work appear in the Toronto Star and Metro, among other publications. Her latest book is called Spark, which is available via Little Brown and Company Books for Young Readers. Everyone, please say hello and give a nice welcome to Ani Castillo. Hi, Ani. How are you? Good. How are you? I am well, thank you. Uh, now, first of all, I mentioned you're from Mexico. How long have you called Toronto home? It's going to be 15 years now. And for, first of all, can I say one thing? I just realized the last time we had another long winter, we were two years younger. <laughs> and I feel really grateful to see all of these Beautiful people working to put this beautiful thing together again. I've missed it so much. Two years oh. older and wiser. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Ani. That's, that's great. That's nice to hear. Uh, you know, I, I'm with you. I, I wish I was there with you in Toronto, but I'm here in Edmonton. I, I couldn't make it. But uh, no, it is lovely to, to gather like this uh, for long night and, and long winter. You're absolutely right. Now, one of the themes for the evening is to discuss... Uh, affordability, uh, our ability to live in Toronto or Ontario or anywhere really these days and make a living and and have a, a livelihood. I wonder, is it challenging for you to live and make a, a livelihood for yourself and your family in Toronto? It has been. Uh, it's been a long road. And in fact, I'm a single mom. I'm divorced. Divorced immigrant single mom. I'm one of those extreme minorities that I don't have family support or anything like that. So I've been always trying to find a way to find a place to live for me and my kids. So I don't know if you've heard of a institution called Artscape. Have you? I have. Yes. So Artscape is amazing. <laughs> so it's one of those. It's one of the few things that has made me feel like the city takes care of its people, kind of. Because you know, when you come here, sometimes you feel like, why do I love this city so darn much, and the city doesn't love me back, <laughs> kind of? Because it's so hard to survive. It's so hard to enter the culture. It's so hard to get your work out there. It's so hard to get started, and. And I love this place so much. So when I, I found, I found an, an artscape apartment and, and I think that was the first time that I felt like the city has a way to love its artists back really, really well. Nice. Well, that, that's great. That's, that's, that's very nice to hear. You know, I'm always amazed by your positive outlook on life. Uh, you were very kind and sweet to send me a copy of your last book, Ping, yeah. which I have a copy of on my, desk here yep sorry i found it uh yeah I, i'm amazed by it it's a philosophically uh fascinating and and positive book and uh you know the uplifting and a humanistic nature of your work has led to partnerships with some interesting organizations mental health america doctors without borders and the canadian center for addiction and mental health more than interesting these are distinctive organizations what do you suppose is the connection between your work and such organizations. How do these connections come to be? I think my work is mostly, you know, that book is published as a children's book, but when I pitched it to everybody, I pitched it as a philosophy book, and I wrote it for zero to 110 years old. I, it's for everybody, but nobody will publish it as a philosophy book, so that's why it got published as a children's book, but it's not a children's book. My books is about being human and how can I help humans through all the things that I have gone through, through therapy, through social anxiety, through immigration, through divorce, through rejection, through all of these horrible things. But then you find your way. I think every time we find our way, we are liberating ourselves from in some would respect and then we can help other people that are going through the same struggle. So I think my work is a lot about that, the ways that I have found to live my life and try to be happy and healthy. And I feel like I try to give back. You know, I used to go to the Buddhist temple and there was this song that it's, it was singing, like, help me to liberate myself and others. And I think every time I find an answer for myself to live life freer and happier, 
I really want to share it with people. And I share it through my cartoons and I share it through my work. And I, I've always tried to share the little findings that I keep making. And the books have been the biggest way for me to reach more people because I see that my work helps people. And, and one of my biggest goals is to get more people to read my work because I think it's good for it's helpful. So I think my book is the most exciting thing that I've done because it's actually been translated to several languages in several countries. And, and I feel I've been receiving a lot of good feedback, even from children. So I think when you make something that helps people, I think that gets you really inspired to keep creating. I think that's one of my biggest purposes of my work is to help. Well, that's amazing to hear, and you're doing a wonderful job, if I might say. I mean, these books, uh, conceptually and, you know, literally, are, are really incredible. And, you know, it's interesting to me, you have, I appreciate the fact that people, uh, your publishers, in fact, don't quite know what to do with you. You write a, a book, a philosophy book, for people who have uh, undergone uh, and experienced some sort of trauma, and they think it's a children's book. And on the one hand... I, I think that's a testament to uh, how broadly you are addressing such topics and, and how resonant they might be to multiple generations. But on the other hand, I wonder, you know, I know that during this pandemic, a lot of us have regressed a little bit, tried to find comfort in things that pleased us when we were younger, uh, children, maybe, you know, movies, shows, whatever. I'd, I've been doing that for sure. And so within that, I wonder, have you heard from people uh, during this pandemic? Have you heard from people uh, about whether or not uh, your books uh, and your work have kind of helped them in a particular way, you know, in, in terms of dealing with the stress and the anxiety of this pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting how, to me, the pandemic, I think one of the biggest gifts of the pandemic is that everything, like, we became the most, like, cavemen, cavewoman versions of ourselves. And we're like, what is actually what is actually essential to my existence? What is actually the most important thing in my life? And I think we're finding that the most important thing in our lives is connection to other people. And, and I think that that's going to be, that's my third book is going to be about. <laughs> I don't know. My second book is about being alive and what a crazy miracle it is to exist and all of that. But my third one is going to be about what I discovered through COVID. And I think that's COVID's biggest gift that I received is to discover that my most important thing in my life is the people that I love and be loved by and be connected to those people. And I think we remember how to use phones again for calling people instead of just like watching stuff on Instagram, which is also fun. But I feel like I think that was the biggest gift to connect to people and to connect to ourselves. I think that was another huge thing how we sometimes forget what we, what we, are, who we are and like what is that matters to us. And I think that is a very huge gift that we received by all of those months of isolation is to discover that about life. And, and I don't know, maybe I, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way about people are just like the most important thing that we have is the people that we love and then the other basics in life too but yeah i think i think that was very important and it was a very difficult time covid especially for an immigrant without family and all of that for me but and i think it was difficult for everybody in different ways but i think there's lots of gifts that we got from that and one was that just like discover love is what matters well, again, very well said, Ani. I mean, this is the first time you and I have really ever interacted beyond, you know, emails and exchanging messages. Anyway, I just want to say that I really appreciate your warmth and your, your sense of humanity and your spirit. It's really appreciated and, and much needed right now, if I might say. Uh, you alluded to the fact that you are working on a, a new book, a third book. Uh, can you give us a sense of when we might uh, see that? Oh, yeah, I'm still working on it today. I was talking to my editor and all of that. Like, I'm, I'm working on it. It's a product of COVID, but they don't want to talk about COVID too much through the book because they want it to be a children's book. And I keep pretending that they're a children's book. So I'm just doing the dance. And I, so yeah, I'm just working on that pretending without actually giving in. So, right. so I'm working on it, but. But it came from those learnings that I think we all had. 
Well, our apologies to any representatives of Ani's publishing house who are in the audience and shell-shocked by her revelations. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding, obviously. I know where you're coming from. Uh, Ani, if people want to learn more about you and your work, uh, where would you like to send them, per se? Uh, I have an Instagram, so it's Ani Castillo. Like, you can just find my work, Ani Castillo, A-N-I-C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O. And... I have a Twitter, but I don't use it very much, and a Facebook that is actually also very, that one is very active too, but I think Instagram is the best bet, and you can find my book, Ping and Spark, a little brown New York. So, yeah, you can find those everywhere, all over the world. This is what Ping looks like. I don't yet have a copy of Spark. I'm going to track one down, or maybe I'll ask for one for the holidays. You know, my birthday's coming up. I'm I'm going to get one, but... uh, no, uh, Ani, thanks so much again for being with us today. Uh, it's really appreciated. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Anika Mark and Ruth Belay of Black Urbanism Toronto. So please stick around. One more big hand for Ani Castillo, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Welcome back to Long Night, everyone. Our next guests represent Black Urbanism Toronto, whose mission statement is, quote, to increase the participation of black people in community development to advance the collective cultural, economic, and social interests in the neighborhoods we call home, end quote. They're here to discuss Black Urbanism TO further, so please give a warm welcome to Anika Mark and Ruth Belay. It's very nice to have you both here. Uh, Anika, it's uh, nice to meet you. Can you please tell us about your role at Black Urbanism TO? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Vish. Hello, everybody. I hope everyone's having a great evening. Um, So yeah, my name is Anika Mark. Uh, I am the Director of Communications for Black Urbanism TO. So that means everything that you see on our social media platforms, our Instagram, our Twitter, our Facebook, that's me. And then when we do, you know, newsletters or when we do support letters or letters to the public, um, those are things I kind of put together for the team and release out to, to you all so that you know how we're supporting Black communities, um, primarily right now in Eglinton West, uh, Little Jamaica, but we hope to expand that uh, reach throughout Toronto and the GTA. Nice. Thank you so much. That's, uh, that, that's very, very helpful. Uh, and Ruth, what about you? Hi, everyone. I'm Ruth Belay. I'm a planner by trade and profession. Um, I am the director of planning and policy at Black Urbanism. Um, I really came to this work with um, a passion for um, understanding how um, Black communities can thrive and continue to grow. Um, And yeah, uh, Eglinton West, Little Jamaica has been the heart of our efforts right now. And it is a a beautiful um, community with lots of vibrant Black businesses, arts, culture. um, And we're looking at supporting in any ways, any way that we can, especially in terms of um, the impacts of urban developments and gentrification on the area, as well as transit-oriented um, development and displacement. Nice. Well, we appreciate your work and uh, appreciate you being here to tell us more about Black Urbanism TO. Uh, my understanding is that this organization emerged from a concern that Toronto was engaged in a form of uh, residential displacement 
and sociocultural erasure. Anika, does that capture its inception somewhat accurately? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, our co-founders, Dane Williams and Romaine Baker, uh, they lived in the area where we're really a group that comes straight from local communities. So I live at Jane and Weston, very close to Jamaica, and I also went to Oakland. Um, so these are really the communities that we call home. And so we're frequently there. Um, and our co-founders, you know, they came back from university as, you know, undergrads, um, you know, just finishing at Brock, came to the neighborhood that they had loved before they had left and realized that it was, you know, destroyed, that it was you know, the deterioration of the community was was happening, um, that the, the Eglinton LRT construction was really taking away the essence and the vibrancy that is Little Jamaica. And so they went around to all the business owners and they wanted to do a documentary. They wanted to capture what Little Jamaica was before it ended up leaving. Um, but in their canvassing and in their talking to businesses and residents um, and also musicians, artists that are in the area that still live there, that still come to that area to get food, to do their hair, they realized that the, the community wasn't gone, that, that it was far from gone, uh, and that there was so much still to salvage. So instead, they started this nonprofit, Black Urban TO, so that we can save this culture, this historical significance that is Little Jamaica. I think, you know, we talk about Little Jamaica just on Eglinton, but when you look at the cultural and social landscape of Toronto, what people internationally know about Toronto, a lot of it is it comes from Caribbeanness, specifically Jamaicanness. Um, and so we have to attribute those um, those social norms and those social cultures of Toronto to places like Edmonton. And so, like you were saying, you know, there's been a lot of residential displacement. There's been a lot of uh, cultural displacement. But I think that, you know, is it, over time, it's been gradually, the city has just gradually been getting unaffordable, right? So um, where there was a lot of really dense businesses and also Black communities. So Little Jamaica was like a whole entire like community. Um, we first saw residency, right? We first saw our residents being priced out of their homes and kind of moving into the GTA area. And so those businesses then kind of collapse because their traffic isn't as strong. The people that, you know, come all the time are now kind of sporadically placed everywhere else. And so then we have the Edmonton LRT construction, which then starts, you then start to see the demise of the actual businesses. So the demise of the community has really been gradual. And I wouldn't even just say that it's, you know, because of the transit construction. I think the city of Toronto overall um, has really just become an unaffordable place to be. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've kind of seen the product of that. Yeah, absolutely. That was well said. I appreciate that. Uh, so I, I want to go to Ruth here. Ruth, with your background in planning, I wonder if you can speak to what Anika was just saying, but also what do you see as possible ways of resolving this crisis uh, and, and these issues uh, in a way that makes the most sense? Uh, I, 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 it's a lot to ask you, I know, but what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think um, pulling on this theme of uh, unaffordability, um, when we did go talk to the businesses as part of our first round of engagement, um, the, we did release a report on it called the Black Business, a conversation with Black businesses report. We found the number of businesses had identified barriers to ownership. The businesses that had been able to buy their spaces were in far better um, scenarios. They were able to have access to the equity that they were building over owning their own space, being able to leverage that equity to do other stuff to invest in their own businesses, right? So um, the lack of um, ownership and the barriers to ownership um, is one of the, the key ways that we saw uh, potential opportunities within. Um, so in our uh, second phase of uh, looking at uh, the impacts of ownership, we've now launched a process that centers around understanding what those barriers are, how we can um, not only increase individual ownership of those Black businesses of their space, but also collective ownership. So what does community ownership mean? In this context, what does it mean for Black businesses to own their spaces collectively, but also at the end of the day, ownership is key, right? So being able to leverage your equity within your space to build, to continue to grow is a key aspect to the work that we're doing. And planning, as we understand uh, traditionally, is created in a very Eurocentric lens. So how do we also um, bring different approaches, different lived experience, knowledges, ways of knowing into this process as well? So leveraging our own identities as people of Afri- African descent from all over the world and using that in looking at planning in a new way. And I think collective ownership is one of those ways. So our 
Um, land trusts have been brought up as one option as part of that initiative. It is something that we're also looking at and discussing with the community. So I think as we continue to have these conversations, uh, ownership is going to be a key and important element to uh, providing tools for Black businesses to grow and to continue to leverage um, and wealth build as well is critical. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, Anika, Ruth's talking about conversations happening among community members and work being done. Are you feeling like the city and the representatives who can help you are listening finally? I know there's been some small victories in this battle, if you will, but do you feel like you've got some allies now? Are people actually hearing what you're having to say? Yes. And, and you know what I'll say? I'll say the power of community is real. Um, I think our city councilors and our government, they come to us when we vocalize what our concerns are and we demand justice for our communities. Um, and that's what Black Urban Center has been doing since 2018. So I'm so happy that, you know, our city council um, and, you know, specifically, I want to shout out, you know, Councilor Josh Matlow, who um, sat with us and put forward a motion that was really dense um, and very long and very well thought through. We went through it with him and his team a lot. Um, and we were really able to come out with um, some really great tangibles for what we want to see in Little Jamaica. So, you know, that's, you know, fixing the parking in the area. Um, that's been a huge concern for business owners who need, who are, you know, trying to generate traffic, but there's no parking lots. There's no ability to park on residential streets. So those are one of the things we had in the motion. We had public art. So this, you know, when you go to the Danforth and you see Greek town is this like large sign, we want to be able to kind of replicate those types of things in Little Jamaica. So when people come to the area, they know that it's not just a, it's not just a regular Toronto street. It's, it has, you know, cultural care significance um, that we can also kind of capitalize on in a tourist way as well. Um, so, you know, things like that we have had in that motion. So I would say city council was definitely supportive that, you know, that motion passed unanimously. Um, there were concerns from our community. Again, our community raised concerns about um, the fact that one of our city, you know, somebody from the city had talked about cultural um, heritage designation. We brought that motion back to the city council and we are now the first community ever, ethnic community, um, to be surveyed for uh, heritage designation in wow in the city of Toronto. Yeah. And that's even, that's including places like Chinatown, which you would think would already have the type of legislation in place, you know, considering how longstanding and how um, reputable it's been in Toronto. Um, places like Chinatown are still under, um, under attack. Right. Yeah. So that was one of the great things that we got pushed through um, to city council. We also saw some really great um, motions on the provincial level pushed as well. And PP Joe Andrew represents uh, the Toronto St. Paul, so Edmonton area. She was able to also release a platform, you know, kind of calling on Metrolinx to do their part um, and to provide business owners with the compensation they deserve. There have been a lot of concerns from business owners in terms of infrastructure, demise, flooding, rats and roaches. Um, these are all things that we, you know, our hope that our transit entities will take accountability for. Um, and so we're happy that our MPPs are doing that um, at Queen's Park. So I would say, you know, we, we love that our government is coming to the table finally. Um, but I just want to say the power of community is real. Um, and that's why it's always great to come out to these events and to talk to real community members, local people want to be engaged um, in the work and also people who love Little Jamaica and want to make sure that that, that it stays. You are going to be the people that make sure um, that Little Jamaica is here in the next 20 years. Well, I miss it. I'm away from my home province of Ontario. So the next time I'm around, uh, I'm definitely going to Little Jamaica. Uh, and, and I appreciate that, you know, through your battles, uh, there's been some progress. So thank you for that work. Uh, it really is meaningful and significant. Um, so, so, Ruth, what can people do to support Black Urbanism TO's goals and work? What would you recommend they do? Um, so right now we're um, in the process of launching the Pathways Community Ownership Initiative. Um, we'll be having conversations across uh, the community as well as um, broader um, to a variety of different um, groups uh, who are impacted, whether that's people who visit the area or the local business owners or other um, key organizations as well. So please join us in those conversations. We'll be providing updates on our Twitter um, and Facebook, as well as our new website. Um, Anika can uh, speak a little bit more to that. Um, but yeah, uh, we will continue to keep everyone um, abreast of uh, everything going on and look forward to having these conversations across the city. Appreciate that. Uh, Anika, you were, you were summoned 
Can you tell us where we can learn more about the work of Black Urbanism TO? Yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, like Rick was saying, um, our Instagram, our Twitter, our Facebook, um, these are really great platforms that we use to kind of disseminate our information. So our ad is Black Urbanism, so B-L-A-C-K-U-R-B-I-N-I-S-M-T-O. Um, that's across all of our social platforms. So that's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, and then that's also our website name. So if you go on our website, um, you can, or if you type in www.blackurbanismto.com, that is the website that will come up. Um, and yeah, I would just say stay really closely. And also our, that is our email address as well. Um, I always like to give that um, for folks who might not have the accessibility of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we would love to chat with you. Like it's really important that we connect with anybody, no matter how they connect with us. Um, so if you want to send us an email, send us your phone number so we can give you a direct call. It's really all about connecting with community. So yeah, follow us on our socials, send us an email, check out our website, and we would love to talk to you. Well, this this was lovely. I appreciate the short but hopefully enjoyable chat. Uh, from from my point of view, it was great. So thank you so much. Uh, we're gonna have to take another quick break, and when we return. We'll be joined by Brian Borchert of Holy Fuck and Dusted. So everyone, please stick around. Uh, And one more big hand for Ruth and Anika from Black Urbanism T.O. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Planet Bean Coffee and Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. And we, uh, my son and I, sometimes go to Planet Bean Coffee so I can pick up uh, some coffee. What do you get there? Well, I like their gelato. It's really good. And for some reason, I'm a kid that likes coffee. That's true. You do like uh, to have a little slurp of coffee every once in a while. What goes better with coffee in Guelph than donuts from Hamilton? Granddad's Donuts. Amazing donuts. Do you have a favorite donut? Yep. It's a Boston cream. Yeah, those are pretty good. And they've got those at Granddad's. They've got good, full-sized, old-fashioned donuts. You can't go wrong. If you want to learn more about these places, and you should, go to planetbeancoffee.com. And granddads.ca, right, sir? Right. All right, welcome back. Welcome back to Long Night. Our next guest is a world renowned musician who is a co founder and driving force in the band Holy Fuck, whose last album, Deleter, was released in 2020. This past July, his other band, Dusted, released a lovely new album called Three. Uh, he's here with us now, beaming in over the internet. So please give a nice welcome to Brian Borchert. Brian. Yep. Nice to have you. It's great to have you. It's nice to see you. So first of all, I say you're beaming in from the internet. Where in the world are you today? I'm in uh, rural Nova Scotia. I'm in a town called Canning. It's, a, it's actually a village. And that's in uh, the, the area is called the Valley. So I'm in the Valley of Nova Scotia. Oh, Nice. How's everything going there generally? Is it good? Yeah, generally it's been good. It's been it's proven to be a, a, a well timed move for myself and my family coming here in 2019. Um, you know, just in time for winter, and of course, then it was it was a spring that never came. So, uh, but but we had a place where we could, uh, you know, more or less live our lives it, it, so yeah there's been some good fortune in it i think just some fortuitous kind of bit of uh clairvoyance maybe um yeah nice now you're from that area originally right yeah i'm from an area about two and a half hours from here so i'm from the oh. okay okay but you're from nova scotia so the move wasn't out of left field so to speak but i think you and i've had some conversations i mean i've thought of you as a toronto person for what the last 20 years? How long did you live in Toronto? 20. 20, yeah. So I'm curious, moving away from Ontario and Toronto when you did, obviously you knew a pandemic was coming. Maybe you planned it. You were like, we're hitting the road. I've got a pandemic coming in, everyone, so we're out of here. No, no, I'm kidding, of course. But I moved around the same time. We moved at the end of uh, 2019. We were settled in to our home in Alberta in January 2020. And I felt pretty good about being away from very expensive Ontario and then, of course, two months later, everything in the world was shut down because of the pandemic. Uh, anyway, did you leave Ontario initially because of cost of living? Was that a factor at all? Yes, it, it, it basically was it. Yeah. And uh, you would ask me if I wanted to partake in this. And I warned you. I said, well, I, I was a homeowner. So <laughs> I, I don't want people to boo me out of the room. But in spite of that, in spite of owning 
something in Toronto, I had to play the part of the landlord, um, which wasn't, I was lucky because I had really great tenants and we, we really uh, enjoyed our time together, but it still wasn't, it still wasn't affordable. You know, we couldn't really afford our house as a musician trying to, to play that part to provide a, a roof over my head and my family's and my tenants who I cared very much for covering those expenses and, and making mortgage payments as a, uh, as a musician attempting to tour and, you know, doing, doing it, you know, it's a, it's a fairly hard <laughs> vocation, uh, you know, financially. So I just, I couldn't make ends meet uh, once our daughter was born. So I was living in the basement of our house and renting out the nicer parts of it. So I felt a little like the troll under the bridge and uh, kind of lost access to a creative space because that's where I had intended to, to make music in the basement. And then I found myself living in the basement with my, wife and daughter uh my newborn baby so uh, i i just decided this isn't really worth it i didn't i wasn't comfortable playing the part of the landlord who was going to keep hiking up the the rent higher and higher and try and you know maybe try to evict those tenants to get new ones in to meet those financial demands it was it's a game that um i don't think i was comfortable playing and i so i chose this route well, first of all, do not feel badly about being a homeowner in Ontario because uh, I don't feel badly about it. We were homeowners in Guelph where we lived and my wife and I had a two bedroom house and then we had two children. So we needed a bigger place and we bid on like a dozen houses and we would never get them because the realtors would say, oh no, that uh, fixer upper you bid on and we're planning to, you know, you were already planning to at least gut the kitchen or the bathroom right away, you know, or, or whatever you're going to do. Uh, yeah, that fixer upper you were outbid by $50,000 by some Toronto person. I mean, often, I'm not blaming Toronto specifically, but it was often people from somewhere else and they, they'd have money and they'd move into Guelph and they'd drive the market up. And I was just texting uh, our, our Ontario realtor, whom I'm, I'm friends with, and he told me the market's just as bad as it was before we left. So as people in the creative realm, I, I don't know, there's got to be a reckoning here, don't you think, Brian? Like, how are we all supposed to make things and create things if... We can't afford to live anywhere. Don't don't you find that's the truth? Yes, absolutely. And and I, I I find I'm lucky in a lot of ways because I moved here when I did. And I don't know what what you've seen there in Edmonton where you are, but uh, you know the prices around here have gone up a lot, and that's very difficult for for locals and people who who live here for people who are also maybe trying to make a similar move that I made. So, yeah. Well, I don't have you on here to be some sort of administrative genius or or urban planning wizard, but I have conversations like these with my peers about the challenges of living in places like Toronto and Ontario. Do you feel alone in making such a decision, or do you feel like a lot of people are leaving the the greater Toronto area for for kind of the same reasons? That's a good question. I I don't I, I don't know because I haven't been back course because of the pandemic so i feel like the there's a certain disconnect between what's probably happening there and certainly if there is a mass exodus where are those people going well they're not coming to to canning in the valley of nova scotia so i haven't so in a in a way i feel alone in so far as that i've i've made this uh move but at the sacrifice of the community that i was yeah. trying to be part of and trying to build for the last 20 years in Toronto that I loved. Like I didn't want to leave. So, yeah. and I'm also coming, coming back home, which has different connotations for different people. Uh, you know, not to be a bummer. I mean, I do, I am glad for it, but I think we also have to take into consideration that not everybody wants to, not everybody plans on going home. Like, Oh, yeah. I got to go back to, you know, closer where I grew up. So. Yeah. I mean, I get it. And I can relate to what you're saying because we both put ourselves in places that are remote from our social circles and our friends. And then there was a pandemic. And so in a weird way, it was actually kind of good timing because we couldn't, no one was doing anything or getting together. So it was a little easier to deal with the, you know, missing that stuff because it wasn't happening uh, after we moved. Anyway, though, I, I was starting to say earlier that I know you're not necessarily an expert on matters of uh, affordable housing or real estate and cost of living regulation or whatever. But at the same time, what would you like to see done about these issues? Like what kind of support would you like to see in place for an artist like yourself so that you could thrive and live a comfortable life, raise a family, find a comfortable place to live? Have you thought about that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a challenge no matter where you go. Um, we heard about uh, um, the art, artscapes and, and things like that earlier, and that's good. I mean, I think musicians face the challenge of the fact that we're loud. And so, uh, you know, the the art we choose to do sort of bothers everyone. <laughs> and so that, that's one thing that has to be taken into consideration that, like, if you want to provide a place for music to thrive, you have to put up with music. Um, and that's something that Toronto always had a scene or, you know, interfering with neighboring condos or whatever that might be, or having art spaces that don't allow, you know, loud studios and such. Um, so, so that's something that's, that's something that deserves looking at, especially because from what I hear, they're shutting down a lot of the, the, um, rehearsal spaces and stuff in Toronto. Yeah. Well, it's sad to say it, but I think you left Toronto at the right time. Uh, but we need to have these conversations, and I think the work of uh, Black Urbanism TO and, and other organizations, I mean, we, we have to tip our hats to them. They're starting these conversations in a real way. Uh, but I wanted to shift gears and ask you about Dusted. The, the last time I saw Dusted play live was likely in Guelph, and it was a three-piece band, as I recall. But I was listening to this new album, Three, which is beautiful, by the way, and it seems a little more solitary what what is dusted to you is it is it you or is it a band sometimes what is its uh configuration these days i think it's uh, yeah it's, it's basically a glorified solo project <laughs> i i got tired of being put in a room with other sad guys with guitars so i was, <laughs> I, I tried to pretend i was a band <laughs> okay so it is a it's a glorified solo project when did the songs for three come into your life was it pre-pandemic or during it was definitely pre-pandemic. In fact, some of the songs are 10 years old. I, I, I 10 years old at the time that I recorded them, which makes them probably 12 years old now. Um, I tend to uh, uh, hold on to a lot of ideas that I just can't quite finish. I mean, it's, it's, it's an assembly line of sorts and getting to the final stage in the recording studio sometimes is the most challenging part. So I, I kind of drag these things around with me. And so I put, some brand new material together with some old material and recorded it and got a head start uh, in front of the pandemic and then finished it out here in Nova Scotia. Oh, nice. Well, again, like I say, it's beautiful. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you and, and Dusted at this point? Ah, that's a good question. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I'm terrible at social media, but I try. So there, I'm, I'm out there. I mean, there's Instagram and, and you know, I, I, I have a few different things, so I tend to put them under different umbrellas. They don't, they're not always housed under one roof, but there is my own Instagram is dusted Brian Borchard. Okay. And what's next for you? I, I mentioned Holy Fuck. Uh, obviously, this dusted record just came out. Do you have future plans you want to tell us about at this point? Yeah. Um, we're going to be, we are going to be touring as, as much as that sounds crazy to me now, especially because we're, we're a band that never lives in one city. So, we haven't we haven't seen each other since we put our record out in 2020. We haven't rehearsed or anything, so we're trying to find a way to get together, rehearse, and then we're, we begin touring in February. And so far, we have plans up until May. And then, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff locally as much as I can. You know, I'm trying to build a community here or, or integrate myself into one that you know there's a lot of room to grow. Um, maybe a, not a lot of audience. In the in the rural world, but uh, yeah. so I, I'm playing a concert tomorrow around the corner from me here in this uh, church that um, was was uh, came into the hands of this uh, arts center that um, they're going to be turning it into a you know multi-purpose art center thing and and um, right now it's sitting there empty so I'm going to go do a little show in there and, and I've been rehearsing with a new group in there called Quilting. Oh, cool. um, yeah, and that's a really cool, like, improv, more, you know, almost 20th century kind of weird, you know, it has a mix of harp and a Nepalese string instrument. And oh, wow. It's a, it's a pretty experimental thing. Sounds, sounds kind of like spooky uh, soundtrack music. And so we started, we were rehearsing in there, you know, a few, a few times a month. So we started opening up the doors to the community so that they could come and, and be part of it and, and sit in on our on rehearsals and turn them into little concerts. And we're going to do another couple of those. Um, and that, that all happens here and, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So maybe not something everyone can be part of yet, but we're hoping to turn it into something that is real, put an album out, tour and do that. 
Well, I think of you as a community building dude. So I appreciate your efforts. And so we'll look out for quilting. And if people want to learn more about Holy Fuck, they can just Google it. It should be one of the first entries, I think. Uh, (laughs) I hope. Just Google Holy Fuck. It'll come up. Uh, Thanks again for joining us here. Uh, We're going to take another quick break. And when we return, we'll be joined by another wonderful musician, Dorothea Poss. So please stick around. Uh, Brian, Brian, do you want to play us out? Can you play us a little music to get us to break? <laughs> yeah, I'm here in my in my in the attic where I set up my gear. So, and this is I'm on my phone here. And look, this is a I got some gear here. I think there's a. Can you hear that? Is there some like funky disco going on? All right, we'll be right back with Dorothea Poss. Stick around. More from Long Night. Brian Borchard, everyone. (laughs) This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Pete's Truck Darrow and the Bookshelf, two fine establishments in Guelph, Ontario. What do you like about Pizza Trocadero, sir? Well, I love the pepperoni pizza. It's awesome. And do you like to wash it all down with a specific drink? Oh, yes. I like the brio. Oh, I love the brio as well. You can learn more about Pizza Trocadero at trocaderoguelph.ca. Best crust in the city, by the way. Yep. And you can call them for pickup or delivery at 519-829-2444. What is the bookshelf? It's not... It's not a physical bookshelf. It's a bookstore that also has a bar in it and, and a movie theater. That is absolutely correct, and they're located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, and they are the best. You can learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. That's right, Pizza Trocadero and the Bookshelf. Pizza, books, movies, drinks. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Welcome back to Long Night. Uh, thank you for being with us. It's been a whirlwind of conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Had some beverages. Uh, our final guest tonight is a well-respected songwriter, singer, and musician from Toronto who's been a vibrant force in this uh, music community over the past decade. In 2021, she released her lovely and emotionally rich debut album called Anything Can't Happen, which is out now via Telephone Explosion Records. Uh, she is also very, very, very funny on the Twitter Please say hello to Dorothea Poss. Dorothea. Hello. Thank you. Thanks, sir. There's you me. Look at me. I know it's weird. Sorry. I'm behind you. Is it weird? It's a little weird, but let me see. Let's. I think if we don't talk at the same time, it's beautiful. Okay. It's a slight delay. I know. I'm sorry. I'm always a little behind. I, I'm sorry. Please don't apologize. <laughs> It's nice to have you. Did I uh, did I embarrass you with my Twitter praise? Or are no, you enjoying the I embarrass myself every day on there, so you don't need to worry about that. It's kind of <laughs> weird that I'm not looking at you because then they wouldn't see me. So I'm just looking at this weird giant sun face across from me and imagining that it's you. Well, I, uh, my wife says I have a sun face, so it's nice. <laughs> I uh, I feel like I have a. A, a warm disposition. So thank you. I, I, anyway, no, it's nice to connect. We've met, I think, fleetingly, right? Yeah, fleetingly. I remember this. Yeah, we haven't really had our chance to bro down, but I trust that we will. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I think this is it for now, but I yeah. hope we can bro down further at some point in our lives. So Likewise. anyway, I think what I was asking, what I was trying to ask was your penchant for Twitter. Uh, when did you discover you had... Uh, a real gift for being a good uh, tweeter. That's so kind, honestly. Thank you. I don't know. I started it in Kingston. I was living in Kingston where I started being a musician, and the the all the musicians there were on Twitter, and I was like, who are all these people? They seem cool. I want to get on there. And it was, uh, it was a nice way to, like, I, you know when you're, like, new in a music scene and you're, like, trying to, find a way into people's lives and hearts. I think it, it eased me in. And then I just became online girl. <laughs> That's right. That's how you're known. I'm sorry I left that out of your intro. You are known as online girl. That's Thank true. You. No, it's nice to have you. How long were you in Kingston, Ontario? Four years. Oh, like a, a degree length? It was, in school? fact, a degree 
What, what did you study, if I might ask? I studied English literature. Oh, that's what I studied. And look Stop. at me now. Yeah, it was a good degree, I feel, in terms of, it's like a, it's, I think of it as like a, an amalgamation of every other art degree, because you get to look at every discipline through the lens of one author's perspective. So you can kind of find yourself studying architecture, art sociology, psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And it helped me, I hope, know how to write lyrics. Yeah, no, I think that's, that, as you say that, that comes through to me, actually. You, you think that your studies inform your lyric writing now? I try. I feel like, I definitely think when I look back to my older songs, I, there was more of like a literary, specifically, like I was writing about things I was reading. And then once I left university, I forgot how to read, and then I didn't read for many years. But I am trying to read again now, and hopefully that will... I'm trying to re, you know, bring that back into the practice. But I think my lyrics have gotten a little bit more like purely and literally diaristic than they maybe were at that time, where it started to become like just actually pulling like reflections from my journal, which I think I still like as a mode. I like them both. I think sometimes abstraction is, it doesn't like hit as hard and immediately as it does to like realize that, you know, we all kind of might come to similar conclusions when we're reflecting on our lives and our diaries is, I've realized kind of a beautiful thing. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, I've been going through a thing lately where people who are struggling uh, or they're upset about something with someone, I say, you should write a draft, uh, an email draft to that person, and then you'll neural pathway your, that, that trauma or whatever, those, the issues you're having, out of your brain, and you'll feel better, even if you never hit send. Because yeah. that's the mistake we used to make. I don't know if you remember this, Dorothea, <laughs> but you used to be angry at someone, and you'd write the email, and you'd hit send, and yes. they'd get it, and then a huge hullabaloo, whereas if you just read the draft, they don't need to know how you really feel. You can just like, ah, I got it out of my system. Is that, am I close to what you're talking about? I think so. I think, I think so. It's like, it's, it's that, yeah, I feel like for, okay, yeah, I think that, um, I remember someone telling me once, like, that statistically, like, if you journal even, like, once a year, your mental health will improve, whatever that means. Never heard of it, but I think that it apparently helps. And then, you know, so by that token, I try to just occasionally write to process things that happen in my life. I also sometimes get into a different mind frame where I'm like, okay, now I'm going to write for lyrics. But oftentimes they're so similar that it's like, I like the idea that just processing something, I like to think of my songs as like, you know, the byproduct of just like years of processing things, Hmm. conversations with friends, therapy, journal entries, some of the books I've read occasionally, and then it over time becomes something hopefully more crystallized that when someone listens to it, they like recognize, I feel like that's how I feel when I watch or like read or listen to art that I love is like the kind of instant recognition of like just the crystallized experience that it seems like you've felt, but you don't really, you can't put a pin to all the time. So I appreciate that in other people. And even though part of me is always like, oh, it'd be cool to like, not just write diaristically. I think the diary is actually very significant also. I'm off topic, but yeah, no, no, I agree. (laughs) And I feel like your very personal writing has come through on this record. Uh, Anything can happen, which uh, I want to talk about, but we're, I see by the clock that we're, we're tight on time, so I'm going to try to uh, whip us through some things here. This is more for the benefit of the organizers who are probably yelling at me right now, not for you, so I apologize. But I'm not we worried. Have to talk, you're not worried. You don't seem worried. You're a calm person. I appreciate that. Uh, now, we have been talking about Toronto, affordability, arts and culture, in dire straits because of those two things. Uh, your position on these things, is it difficult for you to be a a living uh, person and artist in Toronto? Yeah, it's, 
It's an interesting question because it just hits on so many different levels that I feel like I think about it theoretically and then I think about it like viscerally and like my perspective and also everyone else's perspective. Like for me, I'm a renter and have been for a long time, my whole life, actually quite a long time. And I didn't rent as a child, sorry. That's, I was living in my parents' house, but I do rent now. And I... I feel like, yeah, I've just, have always, like, tried to get below market housing, which then is, obviously comes with its own problems, but I feel very lucky, generally, that I'm, like, right now I live with my sister, and there's, like, a certain security in renting with a family member, where if I were, like, strapped, I know she could, like, loan me 200 bucks or something, like, things like having a support network like that helped me to feel not lost in a city that is like punishing for renters and people that don't have like those securities that I do. And I think, so yeah, I think about like in my perspective, I think the way it's impacted me is like the slowness of my career because I just take so long to write songs, partly because I don't know, that's my process, but partly because I'm always working like usually at least two jobs or like there's like, you know, it just makes me think about who is able to spend the most time working on art and, like, who has the social supports to work on things. I definitely, like, feel extremely, like, lucky and have support to, you know, work in my spare time, although recently I've tried to kind of make a switch to, like, having a service job where I can work more on music on the side, but I see, like, on a broader sense, like, looking at the broader picture of the city, like that it's depressing to think about like so many people that would be amazing artists and musicians and are amazing artists and musicians, but that the like practical constraints of the city are so limiting and that like if you can't figure out a way to hack it, that like you might like sacrifice being able to do something that is like viewed as like superfluous but is actually like so beautiful and essential. But like when you have the constraint of of like finding safe and secure housing that can definitely take precedence so yeah I feel like for me I feel like you know pretty intent on sticking it out here and like I was born here so I feel like I again like I have like my mom lives here and she owns a house like that's a huge luxury that a lot of people don't have and even though I'm a renter I know I can benefit from her if I like if I need like get a hundred dollars to be like I'm broke like so I think it's just in my experience I don't consider myself an expert on the topic whatsoever, but I just feel I benefit a lot from like learning from other people who have felt really like fucked by this city. And actually the panel before us was really, really great. I was lucky to catch a little bit of it and I recommend it to anyone who could stream it online. I think it was, it was about the, the gentrification tax proposal that's happening and yeah they're just like the panel was like true experts on the topic and I was like damn like the insecurity of housing is like built into the city from the the conception of the city so I feel like my part in that is very small but anyway all that to say I'm learning I love the panel <laughs> I appreciate that no I appreciate that very much and I feel like we've just that was all very well said and I appreciate that you thought the other panel was better than this one. Thank you so much. <laughs> I kidding. did not say that. I'm just kidding. Uh, we have just scratched the surface, but we do have to wrap up. Uh, very quickly, I think you and I need to have a longer conversation at some point. That's my feeling. But very quickly, where can people learn more about you and anything can happen? I want people to check out this record. It's one of the best ones I heard this year. Where can you send them? Uh, can you tell us? Yeah, I have that. I am. I do tweet. I'm actually trying so hard to restrain myself on Twitter and tweet less, but I will still be posting tweets there. And that's twittercom ddoorroo. And then I have Instagram, and that's pretty much where I post things. But I also have a website, DorotheaPost.com. Okay. Dorothea, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Brian, and I want to thank Anika and Ruth and Ani, the Long Winter crew, everybody who helped make this happen. And uh, thank you all for being here, and we'll talk really soon. I'm sorry I'm so big and loud. Uh, It's just the way I am. Uh, Thank you so much. 
Have a good weekend and a good long winter. Bye for now, everyone. Thank you. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.